0: Blog
1: talk radio hello everyone by popular demand we're back with another history things episode today we'll be discussing the history of mercenaries and warfare from their origins to modern times i'm joined by sean mcfate an expert in foreign policy and national security and someone with first-hand military experience both in the army and as a private contractor hello sean it's good to be on the show
0: it's good to be back
1: Great. So can you start by giving us some background in your military service and how you became a modern-day mercenary yourself?
0: Sure. So I started out as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's famed 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, I served in uniform for about eight years. And then I, so uh, would say, hopped to the dark side of the fence and became a private military contractor, but not in Iraq and Afghanistan. I worked mostly in Africa. A little bit in Eastern Europe, and um, did that for several years, and then, you know, came out of that experience scratching my head about a few things, and uh, that's sort of my short version of my background. Sure.
1: Uh, so, when and where in history were mercenaries first employed, and how did the idea come about to pay soldiers whose loyalty can fluctuate based primarily on financial concerns?
0: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, people say that mercenaries are the second oldest profession. Uh, you know, you, the Bible mentions mercenaries all the time, and never with any sort of uh, retribution. Uh, Romans used mercenaries often. in the Middle Ages—that's how wars were fought. Um, and they used to call them condottieri, the which means contractor in old Italian. Just like, and they form like these private military corporations, just like we're seeing today with Blackwater, et cetera. So, you know, and actually, the word. Mercenary comes from merce, which is sort of like the, the gold you pay a soldier, just like solday is the coin you pay a soldier to. So the actual roots of the word soldier and mercenary are the same. In fact, most of military history is private military history. And the last 400 years have been the exception and not the rule, just national armies. Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the 10,000 were, were a famous group of Greek mercenaries who fought in a Persian civil war. Uh, what did they have to gain by involving themselves in a civil war with their greatest enemies?
0: Well, that's a great question, too. So Xenophon led the 10,000. Uh, and, and um, you know, when it's funny to think about this. You know, when, when Alexander the Great, for example, went to war against Persia, he hired Persian mercenaries as well. And uh, the Persians hired Greek mercenaries. Um, and I think people, you know, the, the, the arms sort of like soldiers of fortune was, were, have always been considered an honorable but bloody trade. Um, and it's, it's only in modern times that we ascribe any sort of a stigma to it. Mm-hmm.
1: So Carthage is one of the main powers that relied primarily on mercenaries in the ancient world. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that was part of their undoing when competing against professional Roman legions?
0: That's a good question, too. So, you know, Hannibal um, and Hamilcar in the second scene of war, you know, Carthage relied heavily on mercenaries, and it makes sense because they were a, a very rich country with people, or city, rather, with people who didn't really want to fight. Um, they want to have skin in the game. They didn't want to bleed, so they hired mercenaries. Unlike Rome, which is interesting because it was a s- small, scrappy republic where military service was Part of their identity, um, and you know, Hamil, you know, and Hannibal was a brilliant really general, uh, marching around the Alps with a mercenary army, uh, defeating Romans at Canaan and other places. Uh, did it was it their undoing? I don't know. I, it, it, you know, was it was it Hannibal's undoing? He, he did pretty well, except he got you know tricked at the end. I think one of the questions that we don't ask and ask ourselves is when you privatize warfare. Does so it change war? Um, and are there unique strategies to deal with mercenaries that we don't think about today? But they're like market strategies. It's like Adam Smith's crossed it. And the Romans didn't really do that stuff. Um, so, you know, but the Middle Ages, they did do that type of
1: stuff. Mm-hmm. So continuing with the, with the Roman theme, obviously in the late Western Roman Empire, uh, mercenaries proved to be one of the bigger problems for them as the state. Are there any examples of relying heavily on mercenaries that not lead to or significantly contribute to the demise of a particular state that you can think of?
0: Well, I mean, again, mercenaries were a thematic part of history. We we have this modern uh, idea, almost a instruction of rewriting write out of history, right? Wow. Um, when actually they're pretty mainstream. I mean, the fall of Rome leads to most sort of things, inflation to barbarians, uh, you name it, you know, some would say Christianity. Um, but, you know, certainly when you, one of the, the problems that has always haunted mercenaries and using mercenaries is their loyalty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the loyalty issue, whether it's ancient Rome, which had issues with this. Uh, but it's not just with mercenaries, they also had rebellious armies going back to, you know the, the you, know, uh, you know Marcus and you know 106 B.C. Uh, he takes um, you know a Roman army and marches on Rome. Um, so it's not unique. Treachery is not unique to mercenaries. Although what is special to mercenaries and horrible is they go into business for themselves. They can do things like um, sell out their client to the enemy, or they could you know be susceptible to bribes and. These are the issues, for example, that Machiavelli pointed to uh, so clearly in, in *The prints.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good point. We'll get to that uh, time period in a in a minute. Um, but later on, in the in the Byzantine Empire, uh, the Catalan Grand Company was brought into their service. Uh, this did not end up panning out very well. Uh, what do you think the fatal flaw of that particular venture was?
0: Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean the Byzantine Empire also had, you know, the Varangian Guard, which actually was an interesting institution. That was uh, like a bodyguard of Norse mercenaries around the Byzantine Emperor. And they were loyal to the institution of the Emperor rather than to a single man, sort of like the Secret Service today. So you have both good examples and bad examples. And, um, you know, it's hard to say that, um, you know, being a mercenary by itself causes, bad behavior because there's also a lot of examples of soldiers or professional soldiers or the Janissaries, for example, who engaged in bad behavior too. Um, but I do think that one of the, one of the problems that has thematically haunted, again, mercenaries is loyalty because their their interests are not always aligned with the political interests of their employer. Um, and this, this creates problems. They, they don't fight for king
1: country. They fight for the coin predominantly. Mm-hmm. Sure, and I think an important distinction too. You mentioned the janissaries. They obviously were essentially little more than slaves, since they were brainwashed from being children. So, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's a good funny. point. Yeah. <laughs> um. So moving on to uh, the 14th century in Italy, uh, one of the most famous groups was the, the White Company or the English Company. Um, they did a fantastic job playing the different warring Italian city states together and. Auctioning um, off the services of the highest bidder. Uh, why were they so willing to pay through the roof for an army that could turn on any of them by being motivated by nothing but pure greed?
0: Ah, that's a great question. Yeah. So I am right now in Florence, um, digging through Florence's archives, looking at this very question. Um, and, um, and Sir John Lockwood, who was one of the leaders of the Great White Company, is an interesting case study. He was one of the most celebrated condottieri or mercenary captains of this era. Uh, he was also largely monogamous of Florence. Uh, initially, he wasn't. He was actually fighting against Florence, and Florence, like, bribes his loyalty. Um, and they kept on paying him, too. It's not just like he, you know, got the, I'm a Florentine bug. He, he, uh, he was a little compensated for his loyalty as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the 10000 was fierce because they were large. They were largely organized. And back then, in, like, the 14th and 15th century, so northern Italy back then was like Afghanistan today. It's hard to think of like Tuscany as Afghanistan, but, <laughs> but it was. It was like all these city-states, you know, Milan, Venice, Verona, Florence, Rome, and the papacy, uh, they were always fighting each other and always if you were rich enough, you would rent an army. when uh, Florence was going to invade Pisa, a smaller city-state in, like, 1506, uh, one of the things that Pisa did in its defense is it secretly bribed half of of Florence's mercenaries to defect on battle day. Um, These are, like, market strategies that work in war. There's other things you can do, too. Like, if you know you're going to invade another country or, like, Pisa, you might start by buying every mercenary outfit in the region so that when you do invade, Pisa has no defense. They can't, they can't buy any mercenaries because the market has been monopolized by you. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see these strange wars, like the War of the Saints of you know, the 1480s, for example, um, 1470s. Uh, there's all these sort of strange surprises in warfare. And this is what Machiavelli rants about. Mm-hmm
1: find it strange that all these different city-states and countries at the time would rather pay mercenaries and raise their own troops. You'd think it would be cheaper and they'd have their loyalty to rely on.
0: Well, you know, this is what must tried really to do. So, um, and it's actually a really good point. So we in modern times think that of course it's cheaper, but standing armies are really, really expensive. Um, you know, renting an army is, you know, it's like renting a car. It's generally cheaper to, to rent than to own. Um, and to, to pay an army year round to sit on basically in an a barracks and do nothing when they could be like out in the field, you know, raising wheat, um, that is, that's always been ruinously expensive. So, but, but what Machiavelli did is, is we need to have a militia. Uh, he was for Florentine, so we need to have, we'll, we'll create a Florence militia because these are. Florentines will not discuss on us because they are defending their homeland. Right? Which makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Sure. But, you know, this is this is what got Florence crushed. Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> so in in uh, he created a uh, he was so back in the day, of like fifteen hundred, fifteen six he was like a the equivalent of like the assistant secretary of defense or something like that in Florence. And uh, and he's like he has this experiment, like we're gonna have a militia, we're not gonna depend on file mercenaries because they're faceless. And, but it turns, but when they when they actually had to go against professional mercenaries like in 1512, they went to a war and, you know, involving like Spanish professional troops. The militia got completely crushed because farmers are no match for professional soldiers. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, um, it's like our, our, you know, tag, you know, flag football team going against an NFL team It's going to get crushed. And, uh, and actually, it's because they got crushed in part that Florence fell to uh, foreign power and Machiavelli was exiled, and he wrote the prince in exile as a way to get his job back, which is ridiculous, because I'm sure like, the, the, the people who just defeated him probably took the manuscript and threw it in the fire. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it, it's funny that we always assume that militia are superior because of their loyalty, they may be superior by the loyalty, but they're not superior by skills. Mm-hmm. And that's something that um, that countries in the 18th, well, most in the 19th century overcame.
1: So good comparison. Uh, so before we get to our next point, I'm curious, I've heard that the prince was actually written possibly as a parody or him not being completely serious. What, what's your take on that viewpoint?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it's just serious. Um, I've heard that, that viewpoint, and uh, in which case he's got quite a wily sense of humor. Uh, but, you know, you know Machiavelli was, you know, to be honest with you, he, he was known at his time, but he was thought of the of idiocy by, say, the French and the Spanish. Uh, he, you know, we lionized him mostly through to scholarship in the 20th century. But through most of, of history, especially the history of his the time, the, you know, the, the, the 15th and 16th century, he wasn't considered particularly Wonderful. He was considered to be obscure or considered to be kind of vile and immoral, but um, it re- his resurgence came in the last hundred or so years by modern scholars. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. So the, uh, the Swiss Guard is obviously a, a pretty unique group of mercenaries in history. Uh, how did they become um, in that position? How did they come to that position? Where essentially they became a mercenary military force that's motivated primarily by religious faith, rather than making some sort of deal with another power to provide troops or, or simply the basic profit.
0: Yeah, I know I love the Swiss card. So sure. we think of Switzerland today as cuckoo clocks and, and like chocolate, right? Yeah. Uh, and and illegal money. Switzerland was once a feared nation. It was like, Oh my god, the Swiss, you know? Uh, and the same could be said of the Swedes, by the way. They weren't just always into the IKEA. They were once a fearsome superpower. But the Swiss during like the 1500s or so, they had the number one mercenaries of any, in, in, a, in, a, in a world of Europe where it was dominated by mercenary warfare, they were the top. And they had these, uh, the cantons or mercenary outfits um, that were largely supposed to be pastoral swifts and, and urban swifts. And they had what they called a push up pike They had these like, tight formations with these 15 or 20-foot long pikes that were very heavy. Um, and they were fearsome uh, until it all ended for them. But um, I, I think the origins of the Swiss Guard come back to the glory days of Swiss mercenaries um, and and their loyalty towards towards the Catholic faith. Now the Swiss Guard in the Vatican is actually supplied by Swiss military personnel who dress them in pipes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's definitely definitely changed since then. Um, so, of course, one of the examples of mercenaries that Americans would be most familiar with uh, with a famous Hessian of the Revolutionary War. Uh, what made the British rely on German soldiers for a quarter of their forces in the entire war? And do you think that was a poor decision at the time?
0: Uh, it, it wasn't. A, well, a lot of things could be said a poor decision like King George III. But, <laughs> look, look, I mean, so the mercenary trade uh, didn't go lights out overnight. It, it gradually went dark. It, uh, it started to go dark after the 30 Years' War, which ended in 1648 and the Treaty of Westphalia. And there was sort of an implicit understanding that mercenaries are very destructive and they do more harm than good. And over the period between, say, 1648 and 1850, which is
1: when they really kind of disappeared. And I think we might have lost Sean there for a minute. Uh, let's try to get him back on the line. Oh, there there he is. Okay. Do you hear me? Yes, yes. You were saying? Okay.
0: Um saying that the that mercenaries weren't outlawed immediately. Uh they were outlawed eventually they were outlawed by the eighteen fifties. But before that, what happened is that states outlawed like non state actors from hiring mercenaries, but they allowed each other to hire mercenaries. And sometimes when they needed to surge, like like what the US did in Iraq, they would rent regiments in other countries. So George III, facing insurgency in the, you know, in the Americas, went to Germany, which had a lot of rental regiments, and said, I just need to double the size of my military, and here's money for you. And those Germans came over, many of which were Hessians, but there were non-Hessians as well, uh, came over, and they typically doubled uh, the size of the British Army for their counter-insurgency campaign. It didn't work out very well. Among One reason is that those mercenaries were conscripts who didn't want to be there. and so Some of them even defected and stayed in the colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they weren't that uh, effective, actually.
1: Sure. No, and I guess uh, if those are actual British troops in uh, Washington, across the Delaware, maybe they wouldn't be sleeping. So that was yeah, interesting. Right. Now, sure. now uh, moving ahead to, to World War II, uh, the Flying Tigers were some of the pilots of the war but they are also paid a very high premium for their services. It uh, seems odd to me that they'd let U.S. military personnel go to essentially serve in a mercenary role, even if it was for the purpose of defending China from the Japanese. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on them and their legacy?
0: So, you know, we talked today about, you know, what Putin is doing in Ukraine. He has, like, little green men, which are basically Russian soldiers working, you know, occupying parts of the Crimea and Eastern Ukraine illegally, they're like soldiers without insignia, and they're called little blue men. And that's what the flying Tigers kind of were. They're like little blue men. And FDR was he wanted he wanted to get into war against Japan and Germany, but Congress didn't want to do that at that time. So he he found ways to support military operations uh, by taking air force pilots out of uniform, creating like this this uh, uh, you could argue a free a mercenary you know armed forces, an air force, to support, you know, China against Japan. Uh, It wasn't just Americans. uh, It was also some other, like I think there was Australians and some others as well. But as soon as war was declared, most of those pilots put their American uniforms back on and then flew for the U.S. armed forces. Sure. Uh,
1: Well, before we go into modern times, I want to ask if there's – any examples from history we might not have mentioned that you think are important in the history of mercenaries to talk about?
0: Oh, there's uh, there's so many. I don't know. Sure. I mean, mercenaries are useful for a lot of... The reason why people like mercenaries is one is they're, they're generally cost-effective, at least in the short term. They can be cost-ineffective in the long term. Um, but they're also... Um, their loyalty loyal to whoever pays them. So, for example, um, like... Uh, in, in the 1100s in England, Henry II, King Henry II, was facing this huge rebellion by his nobles in, in uh, England. And what he ended up doing, rather than trying to play politics with his nobles and try to set some against the others, like the War of the Roses that happened later on, he just hired a whole bunch of mercenaries you know, to wipe them out, you know, which is what he did. He, because the mercenaries are loyal to the paymaster, as long as you can pay them. Mm. But one of the biggest problems, of course, is what happens when you can't pay and this is where mercenary warfare really takes a dangerous uh, edge because you can't go to court to sue. And mercenaries and their masters continually, throughout history, um, you know, cheat each other. And this creates all sorts of problems.
1: How do private military contractors in today's world compare and contrast to the various mercenary groups that have existed in the past?
0: That's a good question. I, I, uh, they, they differ in some fundamental ways. So if you look at groups like Blackwater – uh, and others, um, they are more what I would call military entrepreneurs. They they support a large national army. They're not sort of standalone military units that can like turnkey go to war the, the way mercenaries used to. However, uh, that's changing right now. Uh, and first of all, if you have the, uh, the skills to be one, you can be another. So if you can if you could go blackwater, you could probably become a full-on mercenary. So I I really don't distinguish two very, it's a blurry line, the bottom line. And we're seeing this right now is that all the the private military companies that were used in Iraq and Afghanistan as U.S. contracts have ended, some of those personnel are going out to the world to become full-on mercenaries.
1: So uh, where would you draw the line in that distinction between being a, a military contractor and a mercenary if there's a significant difference?
0: Well, I think the, the key difference is if you are uh, a trigger puller, you're a mercenary, and, or if you're training others to be trigger pullers, you're a it's because it's the same world universe. Um, training and trigger pulling are the same thing. You can't hire somebody who doesn't know how to be an infantry person to teach infantry. So um, to me, it's, it's the same world universe. And, you know, academics, and I've argued in my book, there are some nuances, but really when it comes right down to it, uh, I think most people would say, like, Blackwater is a mercenary outfit, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you had to choose between, say, you know, soldiers or mercenaries, they mercenaries, they come down to the mercenary side of the scale. Sure.
1: So uh, what areas of the world are mercenaries most used today? And do you think it's more of a positive or negative influence or something of a mixed bag overall? Well,
0: I think it's a negative influence. I'll tell you why in a second. But what well, you're seeing them right now – so. During the Iraq and Afghanistan war, that was not a free market for force. That was what we call a monopsony. That means there was one super client, which was the United States, and it had all these sort of like mercenary or private military, uh, you know, vendors or suppliers. Um, Now that the U.S. is out of the game for the moment or not a major player, it's gone global, uh, just like uh, and it it is truly a globalized industry. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing it are. When you have a couple of different types, you have rich countries like Abu Dhabi who want to fight in a war like in Yemen, but they have citizens who don't want to bleed. So they hire mercenaries from, say, Latin America who are ex-special forces to go to Yemen to kill Houthis. Or you hire – or you're like a country like Nigeria who who wants to rent special forces teams and attack helicopters because they don't really have enough of that. And so Nigeria in 2015 hired mercenaries secretly to go and kill Boko Haram, uh, which they did. Um, Or you use them because they give you good plausible deniability. So in the the Ukraine war, Russia, Putin uses mercenaries to help in Syria and in Ukraine because you don't really know who they're working for. They're like even they're like more black ops than like black ops because if you capture them you don't really know who they work for. Uh, and, and Ukrainians use mercenaries too for that reason. So basically you see them where you want you plausible you viability or you have a citizenship that's rich if it doesn't want to bleed or you just need some specialized skills or you need like uh, augmentation or you're like an oil company that needs muscle. Um, so why they're bad is because mercenaries are incentivized for profit to start and to elongate conflict. And so a world awash of mercenaries is a world with more war. And we have plenty of historical evidence for that. Mm
1: -hmm. So would you call uh, your work in in Africa and Eastern Europe um, more of a contractor or would you identify more as a a mercenary in that position?
0: Well, So there's all sorts of euphemisms and name for what these folks do. They, some say they're private security company or contractors. Some say they're private military contractors. Some say they're mercenary. Some say they're just contingency contractors. At the end of the day, if you're a private, you know, if you're doing military things in the private sector, you're a mercenary. Um, and, but I don't think that term needs to be as stigmatized as we currently think about it because most of history, it was not stigmatized. Um, it was considered an honorable profession. So, part of what I want to do is not try to make mercenaries honorable, but try to, to, to take some of the disdain, some of the the the, the venom out of it. Because uh, if you look at the, the historical track record of warfare, a lot of it is, is privatized. Um, again, like the, the Bible mentions mercenaries all the time, but doesn't say they're evil and nasty. It says that you know, King so and so hired so and so swords. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just trying to sort of correct the historical record.
1: Sure, that makes sense. From your personal experience, do you have a particularly harrowing story you can share with us?
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do. Not all of which I can share. I mean, you know, one of the things I did, um, which I'm very proud of actually, is, um, you know, mercenaries can do some great things too. Um, you know, I, I, I worked to help rebuild Liberia's Military after Charles Taylor, who was a vile warlord, left in 2003, uh, and you know Liberia was uh, suffered 14 years of civil war. It was horrible. Uh, another thing I did, which I'm very proud of, is I helped the mothers stop a potential genocide in Burundi. So your know, listeners might remember in 1994 the Rwandan genocide, uh, and, you know, Hutu versus Tutsi. In, like, 90 days, 800,000 people were slaughtered by machetes and other horrible ways to die. Um, And it swept through central, like, Africa. It wasn't just Rwanda. It was Burundi and parts of the Congo and other countries. Ten years after that, in 2004, U.S. intelligence had, you know, good intelligence that there would be another assassination attempt on the president of Burundi and that this could re-spark, rekindle the genocide. Um, and so our mission was to go in there and secretly prevent this from happening, which we did. Uh, and I can't get into the details of how we did it, but it it did involve some harrowing moments and it did involve some fighting, uh, between some of the forces on the ground to keep the president alive. The good news is that we were able to keep him alive. He stood for election. He got unelected, Hmm. but there was a peaceful transition of power in Burundi. Um, Burundi, however, still is, a, is it's a troubled country, a troubled region. It's a, it's a hot spot, and uh, it's by no means is a problem there over.
1: Oh, wow. So looking into the future, where do you see the utilization of privatized warfare? Well, I think
0: we're going to see it grow because nothing can stop it. International law doesn't exist really to stop it, and even if it did exist, Who's going to go into Syria and arrest all the mercenaries? You know I mean? Also, they can shoot and kill your law enforcement. Um, I see mercenaries growing. It's a trend that's been growing every year. It's just not covered uh, in the New York Times, et cetera. But this might become uh, one of the major security uh, vulnerabilities in the century going forward. Because if you have, a, if you have an, a, a, an industry invested in conflict, going to the most like conflict-prone places in the world, you're going to see more and more, and, um, and again, the, the people that are going to be using them are going to be uh, rich people who uh, who don't have muscle and want it, but are like oil companies. Maybe ExxonMobil will have its own army someday, <laughs> uh, or or it's going to be like you know people who want plausible deniability, like like Putin, you know, mm-hmm. or it's going to be uh, rich countries like the Emirates who who want to have a large force, but you know they don't want to bleed, or it's going to be. People like uh, countries like Nigeria who want specialized skill sets, and they just want to rent rather than own an attack helicopter squadron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there might be others too, maybe like random billionaires who want to do bad things or want to do good things. They might want to end a genocide um, with mercenary force. Um, but the problem with war, as your listeners know, is that it's the unintended consequences that always get things so horribly wrong. Uh, and if you stick more mercenaries into a place like Syria, you don't know what, they're going to, what direction the war will take, especially since mercenaries really are loyal to their own stratagems rather than to the paymaster of the moment.
1: No, that can make it complicated. I'm curious, too. A movie that I always liked was mode of War. Uh, how realistic is something like that, and, and how big of a role do, do arms dealers play in kind of escalating this whole situation?
0: Well, yeah, Lord of War was, was based uh, on Ukrainian Victor Boot and some others, as well as Liberia, Charles and Chuckie Taylor. So I have some experience with both, uh, actually. And I did some um, arms transfers, I guess you could call them, from Eastern Europe into West Africa. Um, and it, it's actually a pretty realistic um, movie. Uh, the And arms, I don't think it's the, – the 1990s saw a, a complete – uh, boom of arms dealers, of illegal arms dealers, because of a couple of things. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, the people were selling off arsenals, uh, there's all these wars. I think the uh, international community has really caught up a lot with tamping with down a lot of those renegade arms dealers. So I don't think you're going to see Victor Boots uh, and other arms dealers like him around. But arms dealing for sure exacerbates problems. And I think what you can see is when mercenaries become armed dealers, too. And, and so one of the things that mercenaries can do very well is they can offer training and equipping. And we even see, like, mercenaries who work for jihadist terrorists. They're, like, Sunni mercenaries out of Uzbekistan, and they offer two services. They offer, like, direct action, which will go and, you know, I guess, to commit terrorist acts. Or we can also just professionalize your current militia and bring them up to the next level. And the, the way you do that is you train and equip. And so... there's a a convergence there of armed dealers and Mm mercenaries. Sure.
1: Before we get to our our last question, if you had to take one hot spot to look at that you think this is going to be the biggest problem moving forward, is there one area you would put the most emphasis on?
0: Well, the thing that worries me is that, um, you know, warfare in general is going underground in the 21st century, and it's what I call shadow wars. And the reason why is because we live in an information age where plausible deniability can be more powerful than firepower. Um, You know, Putin, for example, could have blitzkrieg into eastern Ukraine with the tank divisions he has and taken it, but he instead he chose things like proxy militia, mercenaries, special forces, little green men, things that offer good plausible deniability. I think that's the future of a lot of warfare, and I think that's where mercenaries are going to play the biggest role and create the most havoc. Um, especially if they play sides against each other. So I would work. I would look at shadow wars uh, by, by big powers. I would also look at rich countries or rich people who don't want to believe but want to wage war, whether they be multinational corporations or they want to be in the Emirates. Um, and of course, conflict markets, Africa, the Middle East, parts of South Asia, we're going to see them there.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick with, with Russia, it's obvious everyone knows that it's their troops in Crimea. I find it weird they try to. Uh, you know, have plausible deniability or cover that up in some way when, I mean, it's pretty obvious. So I don't even see what they have to gain by doing that.
0: Well, they don't have to gain anything now, but they did at the time. Mm-hmm. So when they took uh, took Crimea over in 2014, what they did is they stationed Spetsnaz there. And while the world was still debating, are they Spetsnaz or not? Are they little green men or not? They were sort of occupying. So by the time they sort of raised the Russian flag, it was a state of complete. And uh, and now they own Crimea. It's a, a flat-out land grab. Mm-hmm. And parable deniability ability was a uh, pretty instrumental in them doing that. They had they were bamboozling the news cycle as they were matching their forces. Um, so it's it's not that it's a, it, matter, it doesn't matter now. We all know that they sort of they the proverbial cat is out of the bag. Mm-hmm. But the operation itself, it, parable to my ability, played a pretty key role. So whether that happens again, if they do this again, well,
1: you know, that's a good question. Yeah. Now, is there any projects you have that you can tell us about? Uh, I know you have a few books that you have published as well.
0: Yeah. So I, um, well, first of all, I started writing a nonfiction book about the world of mercenaries called The Modern Mercenary, but I turned to fiction as a way to really pull back the curtain on this world uh, the way that like John Le Carre did for the Cold War uh, or King Tom Fancy did as well in some ways. I have this, uh, my most recent novel is called Deep Black, um, and it 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 takes you inside the mercenary world by following the main character, Tom Locke, who's like kind of a reluctant mercenary, if you will, um, and um, and it kind of you know it's a thinly veiled reality. Uh, and I'm also working on a new book coming out next, early next year called the ne- the Ten New Rules of War, and it's a nonfiction book about what will win future wars, uh, and it. It'll uh, – it's kind of – I expect it will be um, controversial because it's not going to be F-35s and aircraft carriers. It'll be other things entirely. No. Oh,
1: well. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. It uh, definitely sounds interesting. Thanks so much again for, for being on the show and uh, telling us all about mercenaries. Thank you very
0: much. I really appreciate
1: it. Great. That has been Sean McFaith. Um Fantastic talking to him. And uh, that's our show for today. Uh, So we'll be back soon with a new episode, a new topic, and hope you've enjoyed this one and you enjoy the next one. Once again, if you're not signed up yet for the mailing list, uh, you can do that at tinyurl.com slash the AJ Bruno show. You won't get too many messages, just a few emails a month, letting you know about what's going on here on this show. So uh, that's it for now. And I'm signing off.
0: Thanks again.